0: Hey, welcome and good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know if you're like me, Pastor Gabe kind of alluded to it, but um, your heart's probably a little bit heavy this morning. Um, I had planned to come out this morning and do kind of a celebration message uh, about Pentecost. Pentecost is, today, by the way, is Pentecost Sunday where Christians around the world celebrate really the birth of the church, not the birth of Jesus Christ. We know that is Christmas. This is is the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, empowering them to go and do what Jesus had commanded them to do. Jesus gave them a command, go forth and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them the ways of the Lord, that was the command primarily to love one another was his number one command. And we can celebrate that because at this point at Pentecost in the upper room where the Holy Spirit in tongues of fire, you can read about it in Acts 2, came upon the disciples, they began to speak in tongues, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then through that power of the Spirit in them we were able to go throughout the world and accomplish far more than they ever could before. And that is something that I had planned to come today and celebrate. And we still can, but I was praying about how God would want me to address that in light of what's happening around the world. The gospel stands alone. We can read the gospel message. We can read all the words of God, and they do stand alone. But there is application. There's ways that we can tie them into what's going on in the world. And I think that's important that we look at that in a case like this. When we look out in the world, especially in the last few months, but always, there are so many reasons that we can justifiably be outraged. Absolutely justifiable outrage at the things that are going on. We can look at the, the um, unintended consequences of the lockdown for coronavirus, which was done to keep us safe, was, was to keep us healthy. And then all the unintended consequences of that, families and lives being ruined, businesses being shuttered, it, it, it has been a terrible thing and we can be outraged by that. We can debate all the different things that should or shouldn't have happened, the things that we could have done better, the things that we should stand against, the things that we shouldn't go along with. We can debate those forever, but it's all based on a feeling of outrage. And then we look at the things that are happening around our country right now in response to the horrible, horrible murder of George Floyd. There's no other way to put that. Wrong place at the wrong time. We can debate all these sorts of things, but ultimately it was an act of evil perpetrated on a man of color. This is a cycle that continues too often in our country today. And to be honest with you, it's something that I'm ashamed of as an American. I think we can do better than that. But this idea of being outraged, we saw it pour out last night. I don't know if you're like me, Pastor Gabe. We were up late watching TV, just the continuous coverage of, of this pouring out of anger. Um, and it manifested itself in ways that were not godly. Now, I know we can't make a blanket statement that half or some or any of the protesters were, were Christians. We can make some assumptions that they were. But I want to tie the idea of Pentecost into this outrage that we so commonly feel. And whether, whether it is George Floyd or whether it is the coronavirus lockdown or whatever the next thing will be, our outrage manifests in us because we see something that we just know in our spirit isn't right. And we want to rise up and we want to do something about it. When I look at Pentecost, the first thing I think of is Stephen. Stephen, a disciple of Christ, filled with the Spirit is how he's described. Filled with the Spirit. And he is fresh after Pentecost. He is excited. He is out in the world, and he is preaching the word of God unashamedly and he's being told to silence and he will not silence and he proudly loudly proclaims the gospel. In fact, when he is confronted when he is confronted with prosecution and death, he doesn't back down from that. Instead, he stands up and what does he do? He preaches the word. In fact, he preaches almost entirely Old Testament word to the high priest who is Persecuting him or prosecuting him at that time. And he is unashamed and he stands up for what he believes in, but he does it the right way. He quotes the Word of God, he quotes Scripture, he does not uh, point fingers and he doesn't yell. He simply proclaims the Word of God up to and including the point where he is violently stoned to death for his beliefs. And for his refusal to back down from his beliefs. In the crowd, many of you know this story. In the crowd watching the stoning death of Stephen is a man named Saul. Saul, who later has an encounter with Jesus and becomes one of the greatest disciples of Christ. And and wrote the majority of the New Testament that we know today. I want to ask you a question. In your heart, if Stephen had not responded the way that he did, if he would have been fighting and railing and cursing at those people who were stoning him, do you think that a young Saul standing in the crowd would have had a soft heart towards the words of Jesus when he heard them? Do you think that possibly Stephen's response in humility confidence, but humility together, which is, by the way, the definition of meekness. Do you think that had he not responded that way, that Saul would have been ready to hear what Jesus said to him? The reason I bring this up is this. We can be outraged. We should be outraged when we see injustice in the world. Absolutely. We should be as Christians. But what we should also do is, like Stephen, filled with the Spirit, as believers in Christ are, that should be where we seek our information on how to respond. Not the crowd around us, not the media, not the governor's office, but the Holy Spirit in us will guide us and use us and our responses in ways that we could never imagine because our primary goal is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and do it with love. Remember that as we celebrate. So I want to take a moment, and we are going to pray for the church, and we're going to pray for our nation. Just join me wherever you are. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that we have your word as a rock to stand on. We have your Holy Spirit given to us through Jesus Christ to listen to, to guide us. And how we should respond to the storms around us. But in response to that storm, we know that we are standing firm on the rock and we cannot be shaken. So, Lord, when we see things happen around us, let us first seek your heart and let us be instruments of your healing the nation, healing the division between believers and non believers, healing the division between races. Colors help us to be instruments of healing, not instruments of furthering the agenda of the world, the fallen world, whose agenda is to keep us in a perpetual state of outrage. Father, use us to bring peace, to bring peace and to bring your wisdom to the world. I lift up our entire nation to you, God, and I just ask that more than ever your spirit pours out, that you would use this time of tender hearts, of open wounds, to find a way to heal in the way that you would have it done. So Father, we just pray that your spirit would reign supreme in this world today and that we would be your instruments of peace and of healing. Father, we thank you And we praise you this day as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, I've got a big message to get to, and I'm going to do the best I can. We are talking about the Old Testament prophet Micah. Okay? Micah is interesting in that Micah prophesied at exactly the same time that another well-known prophet named Isaiah prophesied. In fact, they lived very close to each other. Uh, they overlapped. Uh, some say one quoted the other, and some say that Micah quoted Isaiah, and, but they definitely knew each other and taught many of the same concepts. So we're going to get into this. Even though Micah is considered a minor prophet, one of the twelve, it's simply because his writings were very short. They were there for a purpose, but they were powerful. And we're going to talk about how powerful they were. If you missed any of our previous series on the Minor Prophets, please go back and check out through YouTube, Facebook, any of the pro- platforms you're listening to us now, and go back and check those out. I think there's a lot of great things there for you to, uh, to hear. Um, by the way, hey, if you're on social media wherever you are now, Give us a shout out. Pastor Gabe right now is manning the chat boards. Let us know where you are, where you are in the world, where you are in the country, where you are listening to us, Whether it's your back porch in Littleton, wherever it is. We want to know where you are and where you're catching us. But back to Micah. Let's get in there. Now, I want to give you, we're going to talk about it in depth, but I want to give you kind of a, a synopsis, if you will, of what the whole book of Micah really boils down to. And he actually quotes it, and we'll talk about it later. But Micah says this Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Does that sound like something we can apply to our lives today? Let's get started. We always start out, when I, when I study, I always start out by setting out some background. And I think it's important that we understand the background of where and when and how things were written and why they were written. So let's talk about this. Who was Micah? When was this written? What was going on in his world at the time that he was prophesying against or about? So we can learn a lot about this just simply by reading the scripture, of course, and and right now in Micah, it is chapter 1, verse 1. So let's look at this, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. All right, there's a lot of information right there. Excuse me. That we can glean from that. So first of all, Morsheth is is a farming city. Okay, it's kind of on the border. It's about 25 miles or so southwest of Jerusalem. Kind of sits on the border of what uh, what we call the Gaza region. Sits very close to there, but it's farming country. So by that and by the fact that we don't see any other mention of Micah really um, prior to that we can glean or at least assume that, that he was a farmer or sons of farmers. He was from that region. Now, given that he was, he was very removed from the political scene and the things that were going on in the big city centers, Samaria in the north and, and Jerusalem in the south. He was far removed from that, but even then, God chose him to take him out of that comfort zone, out of where he was growing up, this idyllic farming, agricultural countryside, and place him right in the hot seat to deliver the word that he wanted, chosen by God. I think we have a map really quick. Let me show you this map of kind of what the region. I've shown you this map before, but this is just so you can kind of get a feeling of where everything is. Again, southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, surrounded by all kinds of different various enemies who were problems at various times. Southwest of Jerusalem, near the border uh, of the Philistine states, the red there, that is where Micah grew up. So we can take that down. I'll show you more about that later if we need to. Samaria and Jerusalem, as quoted here in Micah 1.1, were the capitals of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the southern kingdom of of Judah respectively so this is where we are we know that Micah prophesied under three different Judean kings excuse me he about 16 years or so under Jotham's rule about 16 under Ahaz Ahaz very infamous and then another 14 or so under Hezekiah kind of a roller coaster we had a good ruler a really bad ruler and then a good ruler again. So some really changing times during his, his career as a prophet. Now in the northern kingdom, Hosea was the king of Israel during this time. Not to be confused with a prophet, Hosea, or Hosea. But it, he was the king of Israel at this time. But Israel as a, as a kingdom was imploding right now. In the middle of all this... Israel was flat out imploding. Now, Judah and Israel had gone through some exponential growth and trading and prosperity, and they had become extremely prosperous. Judah specifically had just blown up economically and done so good under uh, under Jotham, only to have this extreme, extreme downturn. We'd probably call it a. Uh, depression under Ahaz, and then had started to rebound again under Hezekiah. So again, kind of that roller coaster that they're dealing through. If you want to read about how all that went down, you can read Second Kings um, chapters 15 through about 18. That'll talk about uh, that whole dynamic right there. But Micah starts out prophesying to both kingdoms both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom starts out prophesying to both and we'll read about that here in a minute but then at some point during his career the northern kingdom ceases to exist and his prophecy then focuses entirely on the southern kingdom we'll talk about that here in a minute last week uh, pastor Gabe taught about Hosea and the exile of the northern tribes By the Assyrians. Thank you to Pastor Gabe, by the way, for a wonderful message. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. But um, the northern tribes were captured, conquered, and then exiled by the Assyrians at about 722 BC. And Micah's prophecies span from about 755 BC to about 710 BC. So, very turbulent times going on while he's prophesying here. But this is, again, about the same time as Hosea and Isaiah, all about the same time and very much the same region. In fact, we know that they kind of borrowed from each other or prophesied some of the same things. You can look at Micah 4, Isaiah 2, and they kind of borrow some phrases from each other there. But the first thing Micah does when he's starting out his career again if you will as a prophet his answering his calling as a prophet is he immediately prophesies about the impending destruction of Israel. The first thing he does when he's called by God is he goes into Israel. Remember he's Judean. He goes up into Israel into the town square. We have a picture of kind of what this looked like. I want to give you a picture. Now this is before the internet before newspapers so what they would do is that they would go into the town square, stand up on the high place, wherever it was, and just start preaching, whatever they wanted to preach. You'd have some who are extremely interested. You'd have some like the guy at the bottom who just kind of looks bored out of his mind. He's like, he's waiting for whoever the next guy is because he doesn't want to hear what this guy's got to say. But this is kind of what the situation would oftentimes look like. And this is where Micah is called. And here's the first thing That he says. Micah 1, verse 2, hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Okay, that probably gets their attention, right? For their rebellion and their idolatry, they are a deeply idolatrous nation at this time. The first thing that happens is that God pronounces judgment. Through Micah on them. Micah chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. A little bit long, so bear with me. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burned with fire, and all of her images I will make desolate. For she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot, they will return. Places for planting a vineyard. What he's saying is the Lord is going to lay their land flat. Best places for a vineyard was in flat land. Lord Lord's saying, I will flatten them. Harlots' earnings, they had actually made a habit of employing harlots, prostitutes, to earn money. Then they would take that money from them and use it to buy idols to place in the temples. God wasn't having any of it. Assyria now. Assyria, which is in the, if you remember the map, up in kind of the northern right region, northeastern region, is, is powerful under this, under, at this time. The king is King Sennacherib. Okay? Sennacherib, I believe that's how you pronounced it. Um, in only just a few short years, literally a few short years, would actually invade and conquer Israel. This is the beginning of the exile of of Israel. If you've heard about the exile, we'll talk more about that later. This is when that happened. But so after Micah says these words, it's only a couple years before Syria invades and this prophecy comes true. But Micah goes on to say, basically, it's already too late for you. He's telling them this is going to happen, but it's already too late. Micah 1.9 says, it says, for her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah, it has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Meaning, it was going to go in, uh, Assyria was going to go in and conquer them, and then after that, they would turn on Judah. Being up to even the gates of Jerusalem. We're going to see how that plays out here in just a second. And in fact, by, by about 700 B.C., uh, Sennacherib from Assyria is literally at the gates of Jerusalem. Again, fulfilling that prophecy. But God had other plans for Judah at this time. Remember, Israel taken, they're taken into exile in Assyria. God had other plans for Judah. Let's look at a couple of scriptures about that. 2 Chronicles 32, 20. I'm going to read this to you, but write it down. If you don't have the U version notes, just write that down. Check it out later. 2 Chronicles 32, 20. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, so this is King Hezekiah from Judah meeting Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. Picture the scene. The Assyrians are at the gates of of Jerusalem. They are about to be overthrown. The, the Assyrian army was unstoppable at that point. They are about to be overthrown. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet pray together about this. What's the result? Anybody out there know what the result of this is? I'm going to share this with you. Second Chronicles 32, 21, the very next verse. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land, and when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. It did not turn out well. Despite the appearances that they had the stronger army, God was on the side of the Judeans. And so this is what we see. But it's only a short reprieve from judgment. There's still time, though, for Judah to repent and turn to God. There's still time. Micah, in fact, goes on in his book, and he's listing out the sins of Judah, um, much like a prosecutor would do. This is Micah chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, They covet fields and seize them. And houses, and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. What they're talking about here, what Micah is talking about here, is this idea that preying upon the poor and misfortunate had almost become a sport for the elites there in Judea, uh, in Judah, and and they would even repossess their clothes. They would evict widows who couldn't pay. They would, they would evict them, treating people worse than animals, scripture says. And again, this had become kind of a kind of a national sport for them to see who could do that the most. And they welcomed prophecy. I remember I showed you the picture of the square. There was town squares like that pretty much in every major city. And they welcomed prophets as long as they told him what they wanted to hear. We see that here. Micah 2, 11 says, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies, he's talking about a prophet here, and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would then be a spokesman for his people. Meaning, as long as he told you what you wanted to hear, drink all you want, wine plenty for everyone, as long as you said things like that, they would listen to you. But then he goes on, Micah 3, 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. And what this means is that when they're fed, when they're fed and paid and happy, they say, the Lord's prophesying peace over everyone. But as soon as they go hungry, having nothing in their teeth, that means when, they're, when they don't have anything to eat, okay, they pronounce judgment. And they do all this, twisting the words of God or flat making them up to begin with in order to fill their bellies. So this is where they are. Now, stepping back now, the prosecution from Micah continues, if you will. Micah 3.11, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. What they are saying is that we, we, are, we are God's people. Of course, we, we pray to him. We, we sacrifice to him. We can do whatever we want, and surely God's going to be on our side that speaking the words alone will not keep you safe. But that's where they were placing their trust. So the verdict here, when Micah gets around to the verdict finally, the verdict is this: there is a price to be paid for your national sin. Micah 3:12. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Now, it's going to take almost a century for that prophecy to be fulfilled. But it is fulfilled. But immediately after that, immediately after that pronouncement, which probably didn't go over very well, Micah gives them a glimpse of restoration, which is always God's heart. Is restoration. And specifically, he's talking about the millennial reign or the second advent of Christ when he says this Micah 4 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. They may not have known what they were hearing. But this is clear prophecy about the second advent or second coming of Christ. And then he goes on to say that everyone will be welcome, not just Israel and Judah. Micah 4.2 says, Many nations will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. Many nations, not just the two, many nations. But again, they probably would not have understood what they were hearing at this point. But there's a promise of justice, God's justice, and permanent peace. Micah 4.3, I think we have that on the screen here behind me. And he will judge between many peoples. Again, there's that many peoples. And render decisions for mighty, distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up a sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. This is a time of permanent peace and restoration, but first. There is a necessary path that they must walk, and it will be painful. If you don't think God can use every situation, every circumstance we find ourselves in, for his purposes whether we think they're good or bad if you don't think god's in control of everything watch this watch how this goes together micah 4:10 writhe and labor to give birth daughter of zion like a woman in childbirth for now you will go out of the city dwell in the field and go to babylon there you will be rescued there, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Look at that a little bit closer. Writhe and labor, it's down there. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. That means you will grow as a nation, but it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. For now, you will go out of the city. doesn't mean voluntarily. They will be taken out of the city and go to Babylon. And from there, they will be rescued and redeemed. Let's look at how this works. (coughs) Excuse me. Judah was conquered by Babylon, okay? Babylon finally came in. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, okay? We've heard about him. Bad guy, right? About 586 B.C. About 586 B.C. this happens. Now, this is the same Nebuchadnezzar that takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think Pastor Craig is teaching on that today and throws them into the fire for refusing to worship uh, his idols. You can read about that in Daniel 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4. He's also the one that destroyed Solomon's temple. Now, what we see here is after a time of Babylonian captivity, as basically prizes and plunder, right, the people of Judah in captivity, they are then... The, the Babylonians are then conquered by the Persians under Cyrus the Great. After about 50 years or so, um, now, Daniel is a prophet and he is one of the captives that is being held by Babylon. Now, he finds favor with Cyrus. King Cyrus, being a practical man, says, I'll get wisdom. I'll, get, I'll glean onto whatever gods you have to see if they'll help me in my quest. And so, Daniel finds favor with Cyrus, or Cyrus the Great as we know him, from Persia. Now the question is, why would a Persian king want to help out or, or give favor to a, a, a Jewish prophet? It's interesting because Cyrus is a pagan. And here's what happens. Daniel, again, Daniel, a Jewish prophet and a captive, basically he's just plunder that's being passed from one conqueror to the next, tells Cyrus about a prophecy. Get this, a 150-year-old prophecy from a prophet named Isaiah. You can read Daniel 10 if you want to know more about this. But in Isaiah 45, verse 13, Isaiah 45, 13, 150 years before Cyrus, Isaiah says this, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Cyrus not only hears these words, but he takes them to heart. He rebuilds the city. He pays to rebuild Jerusalem pays to rebuild the temple, and releases the people. God has a habit. Hear me now. God has a habit of parking us in places and situations that we would never choose in order to keep us safe, in order to grow us and prepare us for the blessing that he's working on our behalf. Is there anyone out there who feels like they're parked somewhere right now? Take heart, because no matter how long it takes, God will use all these circumstances for our good if we allow him. Now, from the outside, you look at something like that, and you might think that God really doesn't care. Micah 4.12 says this, though, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Now, a sheave, by the way, is a, is a bundle of stalks. So when you would go through and you would cut the wheat that had grown, it would just fall into stalks, creating kind of a big mat. So that's what he's talking about. What this is is a prophecy about Armageddon, the final battle to come, obviously, much later. But every trial that comes our way is an instrument that God is going to use. So now let's look at the most famous Scripture, the most famous verse from Micah is this, Micah 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Apathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Clearly pointing to Jesus. Until then, Bethlehem had, was just known for bread. That's, that was its only claim to fame. They had made great bread there. <coughs> but this would seem really out of place. Why, in the midst of all this, would he just mention that? Unless you go back and, col- and connect it to previous verses, in this case, Micah 4.12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they don't understand his purpose. In other words, human wisdom could never discern the thoughts and the plans of God. There's no way that we can know. From the least of places, from the least likely of places, God brings redemption over and over again. Now pay attention now because here comes the crux of this entire book. I told you about it at the beginning when I gave you the synopsis of the book, but here it is. The question is, what does God require of mankind in exchange for all these promises of deliverance? What does God ask of us? Well, here's Micah's response. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That is what the Lord asks for you in order to pour out his blessing on you. Whatever circumstance you're in, they had offered sacrifices. They had done all these things to give the appearance of godliness, but it was all empty. They had forgotten, really, what the true source of their strength was. Micah reminds them here, Micah 7, verses 7 and 8. I love, the, I love these two verses. Write them down. Micah 7, 7 and 8. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. so much of this book that you could immediately take to heart, but how do we apply this now to our lives, where we are right here today? I think scripture stands alone and speaks for itself, but let me give you a couple points to look at. How many times do we fail, how many times do I fail to wait on the Lord, to wait on his plans and his purposes to unfold, rather than to force our own way, what we think is right. We rush ahead of God in his timing, and we outpace his blessing sometimes, especially when we see injustice being done. Are we passionate in that way when we see injustice being done to others? Let me rephrase that. Are we as passionate about injustice being done to others as we are when it's done to ourselves? Do we even see when we ourselves may be instruments of that injustice? Or, like the people of Judah, are we relying on the fact that we are Christians? We have the Holy Spirit in us, we know what is right. We go to church on Sunday, or we watch it on Sunday, wherever we are. We're standing on firm ground. But are we blind when we ourselves become that instrument of injustice around us? And then going back to Micah, do we walk in kindness and humility? Kindness, humility, love for others, this is a recurring theme that God wants from his people. And Jesus reiterates that again and again, giving us the Holy Spirit to allow us to spread the gospel in his name in a loving and kind way. Never prideful, always in love and humility. So I just want to wrap up this message in prayer. I want to ask God to reveal to us where we may be blind. So pray with me wherever you are. Father God, Father God, we just thank you that through your spirit, through the seeking of your spirit, we can see those things that we are blind to. Your spirit sees everything. And if we seek your spirit and if we seek your wisdom and your revelation, you will give us eyes to see. So, Father, we pray that right now, wherever we find ourselves, give us eyes to see places where we're being used by the devil and places where we can be used more by you. Let us have the boldness to step into that purpose. Let us be used by you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, you guys. Can go ahead and start heading up. I want to introduce communion right now. So, wherever you are, grab your communion supplies. And let's do this with some purpose today. I want to talk to you about appearances. Because we can look at the things that our eyes see around us and we can entirely misinterpret or miss the plans of God. Despite appearances, the Jews were blessed by their time of captivity in Egypt. They were kept safe and shown things that they never would have known had that not happened. Despite appearances, They were blessed by this extended time of wandering the desert. Despite appearances to the contrary, Israel was blessed by their time in exile. Despite appearances, Judah was blessed by their time in both Babylonian and Persian exile. The point is, no matter the appearances or the circumstances that we find ourselves in, God is working a blessing for you if you trust in Him, if you wait on Him, and if He is where you put your trust. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we can trust that it will be a blessing for us if we allow it. And we know this because God, the God that we serve, the creator of the heavens and earth says that it's true. This is what we celebrate when we take communion is the covenant promise of God fulfilled in Jesus. So the disciples shared bread offered in commemoration of God's provision and deliverance from their enemies and the broken bread reminds us of how the body of Christ was broken if you have the bread take it now then Jesus said for this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins our acceptance by partaking in the blood of Christ. We accept what he did for us and we accept our place in walking in the freedom of the new covenant, the freedom to be instruments of bringing his love to the world. Lord, we thank you and we celebrate you and we praise you on this day and always. In Jesus' name, amen. You can worship with us. Thank you very much, church. We love you. Have a great day.
1: simple message, sing this out with me. If my heart could tell a story